Welcome to Midcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I'm your host, Manar Muhawish Adli. West Virginia. It's been dubbed as a throwaway state with throwaway people. It's a region in America often brushed under the rug in mainstream corporate media, but its significance is major. This state and its story are a microcosm of U.S. exploitation of working-class Americans at the hands of the corporate state. West Virginia is home to the opioid crisis, theft of indigenous land, environmental disaster, water contamination, oil pipelines and extraction, coal mining and fracking, and slavery. Today, we've, we are joined by activist, journalist, and documentary filmmaker Eleanor Goldfield, whose new documentary, Hard Road of Hope, shares the stories of people in West Virginia and their struggle against the corporate state. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So talk to me about your documentary, Hard Road of Hope. What exactly like, drew you to West Virginia to document what you've described as a throwaway state with throwaway people at the hands of corporate America? Yeah, so basically that's how West Virginia is perceived, right? When people hear about West Virginia, they hear about it like, oh, that's just some, you know, that's just some like throwaway state with a bunch of hillbillies and Trump voters and who cares, right? Uh, And so, and I grew up in partially in North Carolina and West Virginia was the butt end of jokes in North Carolina. And if you're the butt end of jokes in North Carolina, something has really gone awry, So I wanted to prove myself wrong and other people wrong. Um, And I've before starting uh, before going to to West Virginia specifically for this and these stories, I had already uh, been through there uh, documenting uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, uh, the latter of which has recently just been canceled. Uh, and found West Virginia to be not only absolutely gorgeous, but the people there uh, incredibly beautiful in terms of their radicalism and uh, their their connection to the land in a way that is not typical of most uh, most Americans, unfortunately. Uh, so I really wanted to uh, prove folks wrong and also show that if we are we are going to throw away a state like West Virginia because it's filled with people who have been propagandized and oppressed, uh, and we're going to throw away the land and the air and the water because it's been destroyed by corporate malfeasance, where in this country would be left? <laughs> so really, West Virginia is a micro a microcosm. It's it's also a mirror. It's a mirror of the destruction and oppression uh, that has been meted out at the hands of the corporate state. But it's also a mirror reflection of our resistance uh, and the resistance that can be traced back, uh, you know, to the end of the 19th century uh, and the workers' rights movement that really started to to, to form around that time. Uh, where uh, where people overcame all kinds of uh, divide and conquer strategies to band together and demand human rights and worker rights. So I really wanted to I wanted to share that story and share how powerful it is that folks in West Virginia are reconnecting to this past that has been kept from them in order in order to uh, try to build a better future. And so how can you name the names? I mean, who are these corporations and how are they working with local and state governments to get away with this um, exploitation that you describe? 
Yeah, I mean, there are so many names. I guess the, the, the broader name would be the coal industry and the fracking industry, uh, because what we're seeing in West Virginia is as coal is dying, uh, because there's just nothing left. As, as one former coal miner explained to me, it's like trying to scrape the last bit of peanut butter out of the jar, uh, which is what mountaintop removal is, right? Because the simpler way of mining was just digging back into the mountain, uh, getting heaps of coal out. Uh, so mountaintop removal is trying to get to those hard-to-reach seams of coal that are literally like inside the mountain under the top of it. It's the same thing with fracking, right? We've we've exhausted the, the, the good old ways of drilling, and so now we frack uh, because we're desperately trying to get at... Uh, what's left uh, in those hard to reach spaces. And so what's happening right now in West Virginia is really like a transfer of power from the coal industry to the fracking industry. And what we see happening is in that transfer of power, there's a transfer of the propagandization. So what once, you know, the bumper stickers that used to say, hey, do you like electricity? Then you like coal. Now it's saying, do you like electricity? <laughs> well, then you like fracking. You know, this right, sort right, of... Right, right. Organization vis-a-vis the industry uh, is just being transferred. It's a lot of the same players, you know, the the folks that were, uh, 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 you know, banking on coal are now shifting their money to uh, fracking because, again, coal just isn't uh, isn't economically uh, viable anymore. Um, and uh, and of, and of course, it, along with this comes the deep propagandization that it's somehow like environmentalists' fault or it's uh, it's the EPA's fault for uh, for for handing down regulations that have killed coal, which is of course absurd. Um, and that really again speaks to the, the 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 brainwashing of the industry. When in reality, it's just that well, there's a finite supply of this stuff, and we've exhausted that supply, uh, and now we're turning to much more uh, detrimental and dangerous ways of getting at it uh, in order to continue to prop up this dying industry. Uh, And of course, that 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 leads to the 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 uh, the increased poverty of the people there, because, uh, you know, governments subsidize these industry to the tune of billions of dollars every year. Uh, You know, coal is desperately being propped up uh, by billions of dollars. So is, you know, the oil and gas industry with regards to fracking. Uh, and the people are paying for that. You know, uh, since the advent of coal in West Virginia, some five trillion dollars have been mined from the hills there. And none of that money has gone to the people. West Virginia is, in fact, the third poorest state in the nation. Uh, and people suffer greatly, uh, you know, lack of housing, lack of access to health care and education and just basic needs like shelter and, and food. So it's really uh, indicative. It's, it's, it's kind of like a very stark example of what these uh, what the, what this corporate power looks like uh, in a place like West Virginia that was really founded to be a resource colony. And, you know, being a resource colony, you see this, you know, really depressing and horrific abject poverty that I'm sure you were witness to and you documented in your um, in your new film. Um, it's you describe it as the home of the opioid crisis um, environmental disaster, water contamination, um, you know, theft of land, you know, especially for the indigenous people there. I mean, these are things that when you think about it, you know, when we think about like a resource colony, we might think of like a country like Iraq, right? Like the United States went to Iraq, invaded Iraq, set up a, um, you know, oil drilling, 
uh, set up its oil drilling corporations to extract and exploit the people there. And now Iraq is facing, you know, abject poverty. And we don't typically think of, you know, a state here in the United States. And that's mostly due because the corporate mainstream media rarely talks about what's happening um, at the hands of these corporations right here on our own soil. So talk to me about the abject poverty that you saw. I mean, you walk into West Virginia. Tell me about the people that you saw there, the communities, and the kind of poverty that they were living in. Yeah, and you make a great point, Minar, because uh, I, I oftentimes tell people that imperialism is a home game. Right. Uh, you know, the idea that the that the U.S. only uh, uses imperialism outside of its own borders is not true. Of mm-hmm. course, you you practice on your own people, right? Um, and West Virginia is a, is a great example of that. And uh, and yeah, I mean, if you drive through West Virginia, first of all, uh, it's not only very poor, but it's also very rural. It's the second most rural state in the nation, um, um, and. So so, you know, you'll if you drive through West Virginia, folks will know that uh, well, you oftentimes lose cell service because you're driving through hills and what they call hollers, which is basically like the, the hollow spaces, like the valleys between hills. Uh, you're you're driving through these hills and hollers on, you know, one single lane roads uh, that that. Uh, that just kind of wind through the the hills and the mountains there. And what you see when you when you wind through these areas is you know, a lot of folks live in uh, in trailer homes. Um, a lot of these, uh, you know, communities are set up where they have, you know, their their grocery store, quote unquote, is the Dollar General. Um, and then once you get, uh, if you drive, you know, 10, 15 miles, maybe you'll find a Walmart. Uh, there's basically like a couple of, uh, of major highways. Uh, Charleston, the, you know, the biggest city in, in West Virginia is what, you know, folks who have been to places like, you know, Minneapolis or New York or LA would call quaint. Um, and, uh, and, and really what you see is you see a lot of, uh, you see a lot of the, the, those pictures that you'd consider to be like, oh, this is this is kind of the the stereotype of poor white America. Um, and it almost feels unreal because it just keeps repeating. Right. It's not just like, oh, this is a poor neighborhood. And then you come to a nice neighborhood or, you know, a quote unquote uh, middle class neighborhood the, the the majority of the neighborhoods are these small uh, you know, uh, single-family, uh, single-story homes uh, that are kind of like nestled in, in the in the in the hollers there, uh, up against mountains, and uh, you know a lot of rebel flags, a lot of Trump flags, uh, which really again speaks to the propagandization. Uh, but it's it there's no you 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 don't see like a like a lot of. Uh, community. And that's the other problem. And this, of course, leads to the opioid epidemic, because if you look at uh, the uh, the reasons for the triggers for addiction, it's isolation, uh, not just physical, of course, uh, but right. uh, mental and emotional. And there are like there are really no community spaces that you see in these places. It's uh, you know, it's like the Dollar General or the gas station or, you know, there, there are churches uh, here and there. But uh, for anybody who's who's grown up in the South, um, there are a lot of churches that are the antithesis of community spaces. They're really fire and brimstone and hate your neighbor spaces. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's really, it's really clear that people have been, uh, their communities have been broken apart. And this is another thing that, uh, one of the, one of the people mentions in the film is that perhaps one of the most powerful things that the, the coal, that the coal industry did and that the fac- fracking industry is doing now 
is break communities apart, create these divisions, uh, create this sort of sense of hopelessness and isolation that the only people that you can depend on are the industries that employ you. Uh, everyone else is out to get wow. you. Everyone else is, uh, you know, some uh, trying to trying to kill your uh, your ability to work and thereby, you know, starve your family, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so the, you know, the, the poverty is a great tool uh, for both the industry and, of course, you know, big pharma as well in terms of the opioid crisis. Well, all of what you just described sounds like what, you know, imperialism does overseas and what it does clearly on our own soil, which is extremely unfortunate. Um, right now, um, we are hearing a lot about the, you know, North Dakota, about the Dakota Access Pipeline. But in fact... There's a gigantic, gigantic um, native struggle happening right here, uh, right there in West Virginia, um, you know, struggling to protect their land from these oil and gas and um, uh, coal companies. Talk to me about their struggle. Yeah, so the the interesting thing about the my my trip to West Virginia and uh, you know the stories that I that I encountered was that I went along with um, a fellow journalist and friend uh, who is Cherokee. And so those are her ancestral lands. Uh, the Cherokee Nation was had lands that spanned multiple states, uh, including uh, parts of southern West Virginia. And it was really uh, it was really powerful to be there with her uh, because, you know, she spoke and in the film she speaks about this as well. She speaks about the intense sense of belonging that she feels there. But, of course, the extreme sense of anger that she feels uh, seeing what's been done to the land, uh, what has been done to her people, of course, who have uh, been driven out of that area. Uh, and, you know, West Virginia is now a predominantly white state uh, with a, a very small, uh, uh, you know, demographic of, of indigenous peoples. Um, and and yet at the same time, uh, she noted that uh, the, the the connection of that struggle uh, where people, you know, black and white uh, miners uh, and now, of course, folks employed by the fracking industry are being used and abused, abused uh, not in the same way, but uh, it, they're experiencing oppression at the hands of this white supremacist uh, settler colonial state. Um, and there's there's the importance of drawing those connections to the plight of indigenous folks and connecting connecting our struggles. Uh, and, you know, in the film, I talk about like meeting at this intersection on the hard road of hope and understanding that while all of our struggles are different, uh, we meet at this intersection in order to figure, figure out better ways to fight and build. And a lot of that is recognizing indigenous perspectives and uh, recognizing indigenous leadership. Uh, you know, uh, another thing that I highlight in the film is what uh, Afro Dene water protector Sharif Foytland told me, uh, and that was that indigenous leadership uh, is uh, is incredibly important, and it's, it's it's not some heroic or you know cool thing. It's because they've been here the longest, they've fought the hardest, they understand the land, and they understand how to survive. And we need to learn how to survive right. with that perspective that we are part of the ecosystems, not above them. We don't lord over them. We are dependent upon them. So in order to uh, in order to move forwards and have a livable future in any way, we have to re recognize and embrace this perspective. And that's why it's so important to recognize uh, not only the indigenous struggles, but recognize how environmentalism as a whole is inextricably tied to the indigenous rights movement. 
And you also talk about, you know, uh, West Virginia being the home of slavery, too, and as part of its history. Um, talk to me about what you saw there that is still representative of um, the slave trade. Yeah, so there's a lot of flowery stories. And again, this really speaks to how our history, not just in West Virginia, but overwhelmingly is whitewashed. And, you know, like, oh, people with buckles on their hats hats, met people with feathers in their hair and they (laughs) traded corn and everyone lived happily ever after. Um, you know, it's this it's this absurd revisionist history that is just flat out wrong. So the story that's told about about West Virginia is, oh, well, they wanted to get away from Virginia because they didn't want slaves. That's just simply not true. Uh, people in that what was then part of Western Virginia had no problem owning human beings and using their labor to profit. Uh, what th- the truth of the story is, is that Abraham Lincoln recognized that he needed supply lines. And at that time, supply lines were owned by industrialists. It was coal and timber. So Abraham Lincoln went to them and said, look, I need for the Union Army, I need to keep supply lines open. And if you work with me on this, I will give you a state, like legitimately just give a state to the industry. And that's what happened. So in 1863, West Virginia became a state, not because it was some high and mighty, we don't, you know, abolitionist uh, story, because of coal and timber. And so legitimately, uh, perhaps more overtly than other states, it was literally founded as a resource colony. Uh, You know, give me these supply lines. Give me these. Uh, give me this supply, and uh, you know, with regards to that, the the coal mining operations were basically run uh, by a lot of African Americans who came up from the South, uh, you know, looking for work, and um, and a lot of uh, you know, this, I'm, I'm speaking about the you know the beginning of the 20th century here, um, and a lot of uh, folks coming in from Ellis Island, uh, from all over the world, and they were placed in these mining towns where they worked for what's called you know company scrip, which is not money. So they were basically uh, you know indentured servants, as it would be a nice way of putting it. But they w- were basically working as slaves for the coal industry and for the coal companies uh, because they had no actual. Money money that they were making. Uh, they could only use the company script, of course, at the company store. So, you know, folks might know about the song, I Sold My Soul to the Company Store. That's where that comes from. Uh, and this is what really led to the mine wars that happened happened at the beginning of the 20th century, where, again, overcoming these divisions, black and white miners worked together and walked together and marched together uh, for basic human rights and won the right to be paid in, in you know, U.S. money, uh, among other things. Uh, and what's really powerful about this is the uh, the the understanding that uh, that this happened in West Virginia, and this is part of West Virginia's history at a time when black folks had no rights whatsoever. Black and white mine workers worked together to have equal rights uh, as as coal miners, and this is actually where the term redneck comes from. Uh, my, coal miners tied on red bandanas and marched together so that they could recognize each other, and they wore that term proudly. Uh, and this is again like that. That's one of the clear examples of propagandization that redneck started as this radical term you know, even like communist, socialist, uh, anarchist even. Uh, and now it's synonymous with, uh, you know, some right wing nutbag uh, who hate, hates everyone who's not white. So again, like that just really speaks to how powerful this propagandization that's taken place in West Virginia and elsewhere has been. 
Well, and speaking of, there's a strong tendency in corporate media to dismiss rural, rural West Virginians as, you know, as a hicks, hicks, right? Did you find it easy or difficult to tell the story of the people you met and describe the people there that you met, you know, while in the mountains and valleys of West Virginia? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I think maybe for me it was a little bit easier because I grew up in North Carolina, and so I, uh, you know, I grew up among like rural Southern folks. Um, but I will say one of the things that has always uh, irritated me about a lot of um, like environmentalist organizers, and I and and this was shared with me by one of the coal miner former coal miners as well. He said, you know, environmentalists come down here and tell us what to think and what to do, and think that we're idiots that don't know what climate change is. And um, but it's a matter of watching your family starve or working in a coal mine. Right. Um, and right, until right. you understand that as an environmentalist, how dare you walk in here and talk to me about you know quitting my job? Uh, and so. I thought one of the important things to note here was to treat these people not like they're the enemy, but to recognize the the plight their, that they're facing and try to work with them as opposed to immediately walking in and making them an enemy. Uh, and another thing that uh, that really you know irritates me um, as you know as someone who grew up partially in the South is that people will talk about going into these rural communities and you know dumbing down the rhetoric. Oh, we have to dumb it down so these people understand it. Well, that's just incredibly uh, uh, offensive. Um, it's not dumbing down. It would be like saying, I'm going to France. I'm going to dumb down and speak French. No, it's just a different way of speaking. Uh, and so I think that you know because these people haven't had access to the same education uh, you know that middle class white folks or you know middle class people in general have had access to doesn't mean that they don't know what oppression feels like. Everyone knows what that feels like, even if they can't talk about it like in terms of, oh, well, this late stage capitalism, da, 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 da. Um, but they know what it feels like and they know what they need. Uh, they know what 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 uh, what uh, what injustice feels like. So you meet them on that playing field. And that's not dumbing down. That's just changing the way that you speak. Uh, and so that was an important way of approaching uh, of approaching these conversations. So while it took a little bit, you know, to get comfortable uh, for folks to get comfortable with me, uh, I think that there's an appreciation that I'm not barging in there like, hey, I'm going to tell your story and let me also, while I'm at it, tell you what you need to do. Right. Um, and they so feel demonized when when they when they get talked to like that. They feel like you know, absolutely, you're right. Um, and so that I, I think that's uh, that was an important uh, part of that. And also uh, making it clear to folks that I wasn't there to tell their story. I wanted them to tell their story. Uh, and I just wanted to, you know, document it. Uh, and I think that was another important like like I wasn't looking for a specific angle. I just came there and was like, I want to hear your story. Um, and I think that, you know, this is something that that I've learned and that I continue to learn. But it's the way that we as organizers uh, walk into spaces, uh, regardless of what space that is. We have to walk into these spaces with a humility of being uh, able to learn and able to listen to, listen, uh, to yes. the folks that we're that we're dealing with. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I want to hear more about the environmental impact that these industries have had on these communities, because when I think of like, 
you know, contamination um, by like fracking, for example, you know, the images that we have pulled up for our website at Mint Press are images of people like lighting up their water coming, you know, and like flames come out of the water. Um, what are some of the environment environmental issues that these communities are facing and the health impact on their bodies? Yeah, well, uh, you know, coal and fracking have a lot in common, um, but I'll, I'll say for you know, for coal, it's a lot more obvious mm-hmm. uh, uh, because you see these, they're called coal slurry impoundments and they're basically giant valleys of toxic sludge. Uh, they're giant un- unlined earthen dams where they just pour the excess uh, coal slurry from, you know, processing coal. And that, of course, seeps into the groundwater. And, uh, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example in a place called Prenter, West Virginia, 98% of the people in that community developed gallbladder disease because of contaminated water. Um, and that's on top of other issues. You know, one woman, uh, her 19-year-old son died of liver failure. Uh, and so there's, you know, the, these, these stories form a patchwork of pain across West Virginia. Uh, and the problem with fracking has been that it doesn't it doesn't look like coal. You know, you can see coal dust in the air. You can, you know, uh, there are kids that come into schools in West Virginia in the morning and wipe coal dust off of their desks. This sounds archaic and unreal, but it's true. But fracking is a bit more insidious in the sense that you don't really see methane. Uh, you know, you can drive down a highway, uh, I believe it's Highway 50 in West Virginia, and at times you can smell the fracking chemicals, but at times you can't. And so people just think, oh, they just put these little drill pads there. Um, and, you know, bummer for the people who live next to a compressor station because that's super loud. But other than that, it doesn't seem bad, right? It doesn't look bad. But then all of a sudden you've got uh, you've got animals dying. Uh, you know, I spoke to folks who said that, you know, they they cough violently uh, and they're, you know, no one can tell them exactly what it is. Um, you know, they've got trees dying. They've got plants and crops dying all over the place. Uh, you know, whenever whenever they're fracking, uh, the, the you know, the animals just freak out. And of course, you know, some of them, as I noted, uh, do end up dying because of contaminated, uh, you know, uh, uh, grazing areas and water. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's there's uh, there's the issue of uh, of no there's absolutely no government regulation or any accountability uh, from the companies. You know, they'll one one couple explained to me that they complained, uh, and so what happened was that somebody came and tested uh, the water, and they sent them a list of chemicals that are used in fracking. Well, when they looked at what chemicals they test for tested for in the water, they didn't test for a single one of those chemicals. But at the same time, they were like, "Cool, we tested your water. It's fine." But you didn't test for anything that you've put into the water. Yes. So you know these kind of uh, these kind of issues are are rampant in West Virginia, um, and uh, and it really you know again like speaks to the the sort of flippancy with which the industry works in uh, destroying the the environment and how the government uh, doesn't right. care. You know one woman said that uh, she had com- you know they had gone to uh, they'd gone to th- their local community meetings uh, and then of all of a sudden the the community board started instituting rules that if you'd already spoken on a subject you can't speak again 
Um, you know, we've heard enough. And oh, by the way, all of these all of these companies have permits. So you guys just needed to stop complaining because it's all legal. It's all perfectly fine and normal. Uh, so it's really, you know, the, the, the captured, uh, the captured agencies, the captured government. And of course, this leads to this sort of feeling, uh, again, of isolation and this feeling of, well, I don't trust the government, uh, which, of course, unfortunately, then leads people to see someone like Trump as an outsider. Um, and uh, based on the propagandization that they've uh, been uh, subjected to for decades and generations, they fall into that trap. Well, I was going to ask how, you know, you talk about the people there that, um, you know, are waving the Trump flag. I mean, <clears throat> you know, w- what do they think Trump is going to do for them? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, one of the, a former coal miner who had, uh, you know, previously, uh, like, I don't, I don't want to say worked with Bernie, but had previously, uh, you know, talked about uh, the potential of why Bernie would be good, said that, uh, you know, it's, he said that we're, you know, he said we're programmed for Trump. Um, And what he means by that is that someone like Trump is seen as the antithesis to the dynastic uh, realities of, you know, Clinton or Bush or really, you know, Biden, same thing. They look at them and they look at their, you know, their, their state officials and they say, you guys are part of the problem. You are entrenched politicians and we know better. Uh, And then they see someone like Trump and Trump was like, we're bringing back coal (laughs) as if you could just bring more coal into the ground. Um, (laughs) But people see that. And, you know, they've been they've been programmed to feel such a deep connection to coal that they see the coal industry as part of their identity, which is another part of why it's it's difficult to organize in places like West Virginia, because when when you say no to coal, people feel like you're saying no to them as people. Uh, and so that's a really deep issue that needs to be worked on and and sort of massaged out like scar tissue. Uh, but it's uh, I mean, yeah, it's it, it's it's this ridiculous perception that Trump is somehow an outsider when, of course, he is like the poster child for the billionaire right. uh, idiot class. Um, but it's and I, and I think some people are are shifting, particularly with uh, with the virus now, seeing that, uh, you know, Trump isn't different. He is more of the same. Um, he is more of the same that, that promotes this sense of you're unworthy. Uh, you know, you all are just hicks and hillbillies and who cares? So I think uh, but he still has these dog whistle moments where he speaks to those people and talks about how great poor white folks are. Um, and how proud they should be to be poor white folks. Uh, um, and so it's still a problem of, uh, of of seeing their connection to being poor and white as opposed to seeing the connection to the class struggle and the larger struggle of all people who are oppressed under this boot of capitalism and this boot of corporate malfeasance. And so that's really some of the powerful work that's happening in West Virginia, as I mentioned in the film, is connecting people to their radical history so that they feel a personal connection to it so that it's not an outsider saying, hey, here's what to think. This is what their grandparents thought. This is what their grandparents fought for as coal miners uh, and the importance of connecting people to their radical history and thereby using it to build a, a, a radical future. Well, and journalist Chris Hedges has described the West Virginia mountains as an economic sacrifice zone of capitalism, just like you described it, where corporations have been allowed to plunder the earth and have left the consequences of those left behind or left the consequences to those left behind. Um, You know, did you get a sense that or did the people there when you spoke to them, did you feel like they felt 
like they were being sacrificed. I mean, you talk about the people whose identity is defined by these industries, but did you also feel like there were um, a group of people who feel sacrificed, like their communities have been left to die by the government? Absolutely. And I think that there's, you know, for a lot of folks, I think there's this cognitive dissonance happening where, you know, they get uh, they get screwed over by a coal company, uh, you know, that goes bankrupt and decides they're not paying their pensions or they're not paying them back wages. And they they find themselves saying, well, that's just a bad company, but the industry is good. Um, and there's this push and pull happening right now, which is why, you know, there's a there's a way to for organizers to really get in there and 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 kind of dismantle this uh, th- this programming. Uh, but yeah, I mean, absolutely, there are definitely people that feel that they have been used and abused, and these are oftentimes the people who are rising up and saying, "Look." We can do better. We have to do better. And people that are looking for alternatives. Uh, you know, one one former coal miner told me, he was like, you want to make environmentalists? I'll tell you how to make environmentalists. You take 500 coal miners out of the mines and you put them to work in some renewable energy project. Um, you know, give them something to do. I'm give them a way to feel. Yeah. yeah and, and, and give them a way to feel that they are somehow building a community that has been destroyed because really it, it, it comes back to basic human psychology. You know, our monkey brains want to feel like we're part of the group. Uh, and this is of course, uh, you know, part of the issue with West Virginia is that people feel very isolated and broken apart and, uh, and alone and like no one cares about them. So what better way to, to combat that than to build community on the foundations of something renewable, uh, something that is good for not only uh, planet, but for people too, because, you know, people are dying uh, far earlier than they should because of cases of black lung and because, you know, as I noted, uh, poisoned air and water and land. So these conversations are definitely happening and they're being started by the people who are are feeling used and abused and recognize that there is an alternative path to just falling okay. back on despair and falling back on uh, Trump. And, you know, you mentioned you talked to um, former coal miners. Um, Talk to me about what exactly they are doing to resist this, um, you know, corporate state that's exploiting them. You also talked about the, um, you know, the people that are, you know, going to like the community meetings, but they're not allowed to speak for the second time. I mean, what, how are they rising above and who are they? Tell me about who they are. Yeah, so I think something that's really interesting is uh, that the UMWA, which is the United Mine Workers of America, uh, which used to be one of the most powerful unions, um, is now spreading itself into areas that are not coal mining. Uh, you know, they have uh, they have UMWA mem- members that work at hospitals and UMWA members that work in in, in other industries besides coal. And uh, the goal is for, you know, a lot of folks in the UMWA is to have a presence in the renewable energy sector. Um, so a lot of people are are pushing for that and using this sort of strength of unions, you know, this collective strength to push for that. And, uh, you know, West Virginia recently had some had some pretty good election results uh, uh, based on this idea of an alternative to uh, to the corporate malfeasance and the, uh, the 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 great level of destruction that's been uh, that been pushed forward by both coal and fracking. Um, and, you know, it's, it's it, a lot of the people um, in terms of uh, in terms of, you know, former coal miners and in terms of uh, people fighting 
are just doing the you know the the, the unsexy work of community outreach. Uh, you know, I I saw a, a tweet the other day that said, uh, I think people should realize that being an organizer is like 98%, uh, you know, Zoom calls and knocking on doors and spreadsheets and planning, <laughs> like 2% is being out in the street. Um, and that's so true because the difficult work is the behind the scenes work. It's the it's the sitting down with people on their porch and, ha and having a beer and talking about, hey, so you don't trust the government? I don't trust the government either. Let's talk about it. Um, and I think this is the work that's happening. And, you know, I, I, I heard from uh, fr from somebody that I spoke to, you know, when the primaries were still going on, that she was walking around talking to folks about Bernie. And she was very pleased with the results because she would start out by saying, like, hey, what you know, what do you all do? Oh, you work in the mines or oh, you work in the fracking industry. Well, let's talk about this. And and uh, oh, you, you've already had like a miscarriage. Well, let's talk about why. And like that, that's horrible. Um and so this kind of community outreach is how people are kind of getting around the issue of uh, a really corrupt uh, government. Because, again, you know, th the idea of, of not being allowed to speak to your government officials because they've just instituted this new rule uh, is, is, again, just another tactic to avoid having to deal with the fallout of this great uh, oppression. So people are finding ways to circumnavigate it. And uh, in so doing, they're also finding people to run for office uh, that are better suited for the, the needs of both people and planet. And so how is the uh, local government uh, responding to people organizing? And are they uh, working hand in hand with um, the oil and gas and frack or oil, gas and coal industry? Yeah, they absolutely are. I mean, I mean, what I what I heard about and saw in West Virginia is very reminiscent of what I heard and saw in Pennsylvania, um, <clears throat> where local governments are deep in the pockets of fracking. Uh, Pennsylvania being one of the most fracked states, if not the most fracked states in the country. Uh, same thing in Louisiana. You know, try try talking to somebody uh, who isn't bought by coal or, or sorry, bought by oil and 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 chem. It's it's impossible. Um, so I think people. In terms of the local governments, uh, people have deep distrust of their local governments, which is very warranted. Uh, but it's also something that uh, that local organizers are working to shift in terms of getting other folks to run uh, and and win on the idea that uh, you know people should vote in in local. Uh, in their local elections, because there's actually a lot you can do in local elections uh, to, to to facilitate change. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the bought and paid for uh, aspect of politicians in West Virginia is incredibly stark. But again, it's, 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 a, it's a story that's very similar. And I've had a lot of people reach out uh, you know, I had a former uh, steel worker in Ohio message me uh, saying that, you know, this is my story, too. And I completely relate to these guys, you know, the former coal miners. I completely relate to them. This isn't just a West Virginia story. This is an American story. Well, and you talk about this story being a mirror of <laughs> of the entire landscape of the United States. Um, I'm, I'm curious about what alternatives are um, rising um, in West Virginia to coal, gas, and fracking. I mean, what, what comes to mind to me is that I remember a couple of years ago, I don't remember what state it was. It actually might have been West Virginia where um, <laughs> people were installing like solar panels on their houses and then the state went in and made it illegal <laughs> because they wanted people to rely on like the electrical companies. I mean, that's just an example of how the deep pockets of the industry are entrenched in local government. 
talk to me about, I mean, what are there alternatives that are rising up and are they facing um, setbacks because of um, this corporate government uh, relationship? Yeah, I mean, the, there are a lot of hurdles. Uh, I, I spoke to, to, to one man who basically lives off the grid. He, uh, he collects rainwater and then filters it for all of his household water needs. He has solar panels that provide all the electricity. And I damn near burned myself when I took a shower because his... Uh, the electricity, the, the electricity is so hot? good that, oh my gosh, it was so hot. Um, and he has, uh, you know, um, uh, like a, a, a toilet that burns, uh, I don't know what they're called, but, uh, that has a toilet that basically like burns and then it creates ash, which he then spreads on his, on his yard and in the woods. Wow. It's great. Uh, and, uh, and, and he works with, uh, folks in, in basically shifting their homes to solar powered. Um, and he said that they, they've run into a lot of hurdles because, of course, the state is propping up the coal industry uh, and the fracking industry, but God forbid they give any subsidies to the renewable energy sector. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what's actually happening, which is kind of cool because of that, is uh, and and you know folks might have seen recent uh, films or talks about like the danger of big green in terms of the you know the, the renewable energy sector like chopping down forests in order to install solar uh, farms and things yes. like that. And what's happening in West Virginia is an interesting uh, basically because people are having to work kind of like on the down low because the state isn't subsidizing anything is you have these smaller more autonomous. Uh, uh, you know, community-run uh, solar panels and, and 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 solar farms and things like that, which is actually how it should be, right? Uh, and in, in terms of uh, in terms of other alternatives, you know, these uh, unfortunately you can't ever fully bring back a mountain that has been decimated by mountaintop removal. There's these talks of reclamation, but it's basically like once you've decapitated the mountain, you've de- decapitated the being, um, which is of course uh, grotesque, but it is unfortunately the truth. Um, but these places, which are of course very toxic with chemicals, uh, could be great spots for small wind farms, um, because they've just been, you know, they've clear cut an entire mountaintop, um, and you're on top of a mountain. So there's plenty of wind. Um, and so I, I saw several spots where this would be a, you know, a, a very viable option, uh, for a small scale wind farm. So there's a lot that you could do in, in West Virginia and people are really having these conversations. They're talking about how, uh, how this could be viable. They're seeing how it works by, you know, shifting their own homes or even starting small with like, Hey, I've got this shed. Cause a lot of people live on like, uh, you know, just a lot of land, uh, not because they're well off, just because there is a lot of land. Um, so they've got like a shed over here and they're like, well, maybe I'll put some solar panels over there and see how it works. So people are learning how uh, how this could work for them. And then thereby, you know, like showing it by doing you, you see that, well, actually, this makes more sense. And uh, I don't have to be a part of this, uh, th- th- this coal industry anymore. I don't have to be part of the fracking industry. I could try working with uh, with renewable energy sources. So it's it's happening small scale. Uh, and of course, there's the worry that it's not happening fast enough. Uh, but I think that with the with the diversity of tactics that people are using uh, and this, you know, onward marching uh, shift in in perspectives and shift in uh, energy sources, West Virginia could be a great example of of how to build that livable future. 
And what are you hoping to achieve um, with this film? I mean, you share these incredible stories of people struggling, being exploited, yet so many rising to the challenge and trying to, um, you know, rise up against this corporate state being a resource colony. What do you hope to achieve with this film? Well, I really want to I want to share these stories because I think they're so important uh, because I think a lot of people feel lost um, and isolated. A lot of people feel that things are hopeless. Um, and by connecting to a radical past, you recognize that your struggle is not your own. Your struggle is echoes with with history. It echoes with the power of the people that have come before you. Uh, and I think that it's important to recognize that and it's important to see what we can learn from the history, of course, because, you know, just like with, uh, you know, a person, if you don't know who you've been, how do you know who you are? If we don't know who we've been in the past, how could we possibly know who we are and possibly build a future? So I really want to share these stories um, for that sake. And also, you know, the, I mean, the film is called Hard Road of Hope and 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 in that I want I want to 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 recognize that hope isn't always easy. Yeah. Uh, but you know, as Huey P. Newton said uh, in his book Revolutionary Suicide, uh, I have to live with hope and dignity. Uh, it's the only way that I can I can I can do this, and I have to fight uh, for my community. So I think that you know it's not always easy to hope, uh, but I think it's it's what we have, and a lot of that is built on the past, and a lot of that is built on this feeling of solidarity that gets built in the shadow of capitalism that tries to keep us isolated, that tries to keep us alone. But by connecting to the past, we can also connect to each other in the present, and thereby build solidarity in order to in order to build a better future. And that's really the the points that I want to get across with the film. And just imagine if the people of West Virginia um, stood up strong, united together against this, uh, you know, being a resource colony against these um, oil, gas and and coal companies. I mean, imagine the domino effect that that would have across the, across the state, um, across the states and just the kind of courage it would spread to other people. It would inspire people to be more courageous to stand up because the truth is, Eleanor, you and I both know that. It's really just about uniting, right? It's about finding the courage within ourselves because we all have it and believing that um, it is the 1%. It is these these corporate entities that are dividing us. They're occupying us um, to fight each other while they exploit us. And if only, if only we could unite, um, we would be a much stronger force. It doesn't matter how many weapons or shiny metal weapons they have. It truly is up to the people to rise up. Um, Eleanor, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for sharing the story of West Virginia. You can find her new documentary at hardroadofhope.com. And that's a wrap for today's Midcast podcast. You can support this program by becoming a member on our Patreon page. We'll see you next week.